Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the Autism Science Foundation weekly podcast. Last week, I got so involved in the Mark Shen brain fluid study that I ran out of time, and I didn't get to talk about another incredibly important finding that adds evidence found in brain tissue as to why comorbid symptoms like anxiety seem to change around adolescence. Now, anxiety peaks, at least in some people with autism, and other issues may come to light during puberty and adolescence. Now, maybe it's puberty, or maybe it's connections of the brain. As you may remember, in February, a study was published that looked at the number of cells in different parts of the amygdala at different ages of people with autism. Researchers out of the UC Davis Mind Institute found that there were too many neurons early on in life, and then in adolescence, it started to decline to the point where there were actually fewer neurons compared to those without autism. So the beginning too many, later too few. At the intersection of these lines was adolescence. Of course, it was a certain type of neuron in a certain area of the amygdala, but you get the idea. Now this week, research out of San Diego State University, published by a previous ASF fellow named Ina Fishman, looked at connectivity in the brain between the amygdala and other brain regions outside the amygdala during these same periods of childhood and adolescence. So they used a different technique, but were able to compare those with autism in childhood and adolescence to those without autism in childhood and adolescence to figure out how the amygdala connected to other regions during this time period in people with autism as compared to typically developing people. This is important because if there are different densities of neurons in different areas of the amygdala, that will probably affect how those neurons connect and communicate with other neurons. And that's what Dr. Fishman looked at. So what did they find? In a new paper published in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, or JACAP, Dr. Fishman reported that children and adolescents with autism had atypically reduced connectivity between the amygdala and regions of the brain responsible for processing critical information like faces, facial expressions, and gaze. Weaker connections between the amygdala involved in processing social information and regions involved in encoding of facial cues are likely related to coordination of these regions over a child's lifespan, could be because over time, improper connections were not made and those circuits were not adequately supported. In other words, they were not watered properly, so the flowers could not grow. Of course, everyone was not the same. I mean, that would be too easy. They used something called a clustering analysis, which is really statistical jargon, to identify three subgroups just based solely on their amygdala connection patterns. So listen to this. They developed the subgroups based on the amygdala patterns, but it turns out that grouping them together based on their brains also showed that these different groups had different levels of autism symptoms and overall cognitive functioning. This particular finding is in line with the increasingly recognized notion that there might be different types of autisms with different biological and neural underpinnings. I asked Dr. Fishman to comment and she responded and I quote, This highlights the need for researchers to move beyond studies investigating autism at the group level, but rather try to understand and explain the variability among people with autism. Although heterogeneity and the potential existence of different subtypes of the disorder are generally acknowledged, this has really not been translated into suitable analytical approaches in the neuroimaging literature. These results show that the most informative findings may apply not at the group level, but at the level of subsets within larger ASD cohorts. She also mentioned that because of the broad range of participants' ages spanning childhood to adolescence, or 7 to 17 years, they were also interested in exploring any age-related differences in the way the amygdala communicates with the rest of the brain. 
Like I said, if there's too many neurons in the amygdala at first and too little later on in life, how does that affect connectivity? Now, this is interesting. They observed that typical strengthening of the connections between the amygdala and the frontal cortex, which typically takes place during adolescence, was entirely absent and even reversed in the left hemisphere in ASD participants. Increasing connectivity between the amygdala and the front brain regions are thought to underlie the social-emotional development characterizing typical adolescents. So absence of this age-related effect in autism may contribute to the pervasive social communication difficulties experienced by teens and young adults. She also noted that the finding of absence of typical age-related increase in the connections between the amygdala and the frontal cortex in youth by autism is noteworthy in light of the brain tissue research I just talked about earlier. While they utilized a different methodology, that group observed a remarkably similar effect. They reported that while the number of mature neurons in the human amygdala increases with age in neurotypical brains, this pattern is absent and perhaps reversed in individuals with autism who seem to have an early life excess of neurons followed by a decline. The similarity of the results from the two groups and the methodology is quite striking, with the findings of the brain tissue study observed at the cellular level providing a backdrop of how the findings of brain networks are presented. So there you have it. It's a real life example of why brain tissue research is important for understanding autism. Without brain tissue research, scientists would not know how they can interpret the findings found in imaging studies. Well, at least for this one, they can. Thank you to Dr. Fishman at San Diego State University and the Autism Center team for not just the research, but providing some perspective on it. Now, speaking of the amygdala, the amygdala doesn't just connect to one area of the brain outside the amygdala. The previous study looked at the connections between the amygdala and the frontal cortex. The amygdala is actually part of a whole network of connections called the default mode network. And this default mode network has been studied for many years and is actually very important about how people react to the outside world. Across different studies of different groups of people, both with and without disorders of the brain, including depression, it's been shown to be turned off during goal-directed behavior. These are things that don't have anything to do with yourself. It slows down even more than when you're in a meditative state with your eyes closed. So this network is actually on during the resting state. That seems counterintuitive, I know. Something is on when you're resting and off when you're doing something. But the brain is pretty complicated, and this is the default mode network, or DMN. It's thought that this network is what allows us to just bury ourselves in our work, forget about a sense of time and how other people perceive us just to get stuff done. Now, when does it turn on? Well, during tasks that involve social cognition, interpreting the emotions of others and thinking about how other people perceive us. These, of course, are some of the core symptoms of autism. So the DMN has been studied really carefully in autism. Without getting into too many specific studies, let me just say that the amygdala is part of this default mode network, and that there are many studies that say that connectivity across different brain regions is altered. Cells within these regions are dysregulated. And this particular circuit was previously investigated by Dr. Fishman's lab. It's also developmentally regulated. Now, the default mode network is being examined in those with autism in high IQ and low IQ. And as it turns out, they're overconnected, but in different ways. It turns out that those with lower IQ and autism showed underconnectivity within the network, but overconnectivity to outside regions. One example is that they had differences compared to the high IQ group in their connectivity to visual areas of the brain. 
In other words, autistic individuals with low IQ showed poor integration of different brain regions outside the default mode network. This adds to the evidence of a distinct neurobiological signature between those with high and low IQ and highlights the importance of circuits involving the amygdala. While visual areas have not always been a huge interest for researchers, maybe they should be. It might explain why some people with autism show altered visual processing skills, either impaired to excellent. Finally, switching gears a little bit, we all know there's definitely crossover between ADHD and autism. Autism is probably on the spectrum of neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD, childhood anxiety, OCD, although genetics-wise, it's most like childhood schizophrenia. Anyway, I hear from a lot of adults who were diagnosed with autism as adults. That's not to say they didn't have autism as kids, but they were just diagnosed as adults. Clearly, we need more research on the symptoms and features of autism as they were showed in kids, but maybe we also need to be looking at symptoms of other psychiatric disorders in kids. In Sweden, for example, researchers looked at individuals with adult-onset ADHD. The question was whether or not such a thing actually exists, or do people with those symptoms just get so overwhelmed in adulthood that they've always had ADHD and it goes missed or possibly misdiagnosed in some other way? As it turns out, people who have what is known as adult-onset ADHD do show autistic traits as kids. Their ADHD symptoms are still higher than those without ADHD, but they're still considerably lower than those with childhood diagnosed ADHD. So there may be something there, but it's different than ADHD diagnosed as a child. 42% of those with adult onset ADHD were actually diagnosed with something else as children, and there was a significant increase in both autism and presence of autism traits in people with adult onset ADHD. That study indicates that symptoms are still present in a majority of individuals diagnosed with ADHD as an adult during childhood, but it may not be impairing enough to warrant a diagnosis during childhood. So how do you better diagnose correctly? The answer is biomarkers and rigorous childhood behavioral evaluations. So what are the takeaways from this? Autism, while itself a spectrum, is also on a spectrum. I'm not judging the diagnostic practices of this group and people in Sweden, I think people do the best they can, but it seems like there's a whole lump of people who start out with one developmental disorder and end up with another. And that's actually true in the United States, too. I don't have a solution to this right now other than better diagnostic med- methods and biomarkers. I really enjoyed this week's research roundup. And I also want to mention that last week I was interviewed by Jill Escher for this week's podcast, Autastic which is actually very funny and very entertaining. And I highly suggest everyone download it for at least one episode. You're really going to love it. Thanks for listening.